Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, January 8th, 2016, and this is, of course, Christagenia Internet Radio. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Today is a little different because we are not broadcasting this program at TalkShoe. We are tired of the constant technical problems and delays and, and other thorns and obstacles which broadcasting at TalkShoe presents. We don't need TalkShoe. We have not needed TalkShoe for four years now, so we're going to break free of it, I believe. If that's inconveniencing you, I apologize. I don't know um, why the streams at Christagenia would not be easier to listen to and more accessible and of better quality. If anyone has specific issues with a specific stream and can't rectify it by using one of the others, I would hope that they took the time to write me at info at and explain the problem so that perhaps I could find a way to rectify it. The softwares we have are world-class servers. The, the, uh, the, software, the, the software we use is standard internet radio software, which is used by most internet radio websites. The servers are world-class servers. I don't know why there should be a problem. Our bandwidth is plenty enough for actually hundreds of listeners, and we typically only get three or four dozen. So perhaps our listenership on the streams will be more active since we're not on TalkShoe. And, and I would hope so, but there's no reason why we need TalkShoe with all of the technology that we have. And I'm starting to finally decide that the technical problems at TalkShoe are not worth our presence there. I may begin uploading the programs to TalkShoe so that they are continued to, to be posted there and leave it at that. With this, we are going to present part one of Paul's epistle, of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. It is subtitled, Contending for the Faith. The city of Philippi was established and named after Philip II of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great. From Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, Book 16, Chapter 8, while writing of the time of the social war between the Athenians and various other Greek states, we read thus, About the same time, Philip, king of the Macedonians, who had been victorious over the Illyrians in a great battle, and had made subject all the people who dwelt there, as far as the lake called Lincnitis, now returned to Macedonia, having arranged a noteworthy peace with the Illyrians, and won great acclaim among the Macedonians for the success due to his valor. 
Thereupon, finding that the people of Amphipolis were ill-disposed toward him and offered many pretexts for war, he entered upon a campaign against them with a considerable force by bringing siege engines against the walls and launching severe and continuous assaults he succeeded in breaching a portion of the wall with his battering rams whereupon having entered the city through the breach and struck down many of his opponents he obtained the mastery of the city and exiled those who were disaffected toward him but treated the rest considerately. Since this city was favorably situated with regard to Thrace and the neighboring regions, it contributed greatly to the aggrandizement of Philip. Indeed, he immediately reduced Pydna and made an alliance with the Olynthians in the terms of which he agreed to take over for them Polydahia, a city which the Olynthians had set their hearts on possessing. Since the Olynthians inhabited an important city, and because of its huge population had great influence in war, their city was the an object of contention for those who sought to extend their supremacy. For this reason the Athenians and Philip were rivals against one another for the alliance with the Olynthians. However that may be, Philip, when he had forced Paridahia to surrender, led the Athenian garrison out of the city, and treating it considerately, sent it back to Athens. For he was particularly solicitous toward the people of Athens on account of the importance and repute of their city. But having sold the inhabitants into slavery, he handed it over to the Olynthians, presenting them also at the same time with all the properties in the territory of Polydahia. So we see Philip, and this is evident later, gained a lot of his territory and power by choosing who to cater to, who to corrupt, and whom to defeat in war or subvert. And he rose to power doing quite a bit of all of those things. Who to ingratiate, as in this case he does with the Olynthians. After this, he went to the city of Crenides, and having increased its size with a large number of inhabitants, changed its name to Philippi giving it his own name, and then turning to the gold mines in its territory, which were very scanty and insignificant, he increased their output so much by his improvements that they could bring him a revenue of more than a thousand talents, which would be more than 60,000 pounds, I believe, if we use the um, Mesopotamian talent. That may not be true of the talent which Theodorus had in mind here. And because from these mines he had soon amassed a fortune, with the abundance of money he raised the Macedonian kingdom higher and higher to a greatly superior position. For with the gold coins which he struck, which came to be known from the name as Philipp Philippioi, Philippioi, he organized a large force of mercenaries, and by using these coins, 
for bribes induce many Greeks to become betrayers of their native lands. But concerning these matters, the several events, when recorded, will explain everything in detail, and we shall now shift our account back to the events in the order of their occurrence. We basically did this not only to make a digression concerning the treachery and operations of Philip of Macedon, but also to demonstrate how the city of Philippi was founded, and also how Philip had folded in many of the Illyrians into the population of Macedonia. We have seen from our studies of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and other historical studies at Christogenia, such as classical records of Trojan Roman Judah, that the Romans were indeed of the so-called lost tribes of the Old Testament children of Israel. According to all ancient accounts, the Illyrians, like the Romans, are also descended from the Trojans. A district of Illyria was named for the Dardans, the Trojan descendants of Darda. And Strabo tells us that in his time there was still a tribe of the Illyrians called Dardans, Darda being the legendary founder of Troy. According to the Byzantine historian Procopius, the Emperor Justinian was of the tribe of the Dardans, found among the Illyrians to his day, which was the early 6th century AD. The Illyrians are also connected to the Phoenicians, as Cadmus the Phoenician, the legendary founder of Thebes, who was also once said to have been the king of the Illyrians. In ancient accounts, both the Calicians and the Carians tribes which were considered to have been Phoenician in their origin took their kings from the princes of the Trojans and were closely connected to the Trojans. The origin of the Macedonians, however, is even more obscure and continually debated by modern historians. Early Greek legends fabulously link the Macedonians to an eponymous Macedon, said to be a son of Osiris, which suggests a nostalgic connection with ancient Egypt. The Macedonian kings were said to be descendants of Heracles, which, like the Greeks of Thebes, Thessaly, and elsewhere, also gives them a connection to the Phoenicians. Early historians such as Herodotus and Thucydides connect the royal dynasty of the Macedonians, from which Philip and Alexander had descended, to the Danan Greeks of Argos, and the establishment of the kingdom of Macedon from these in what we may reckon as the ninth century BC. Diodorus Siculus explains that a historical Coranus had made an expedition from the Peloponnesus and was the first to unite the power of Macedon and to hold it, reckoning that time to have proceeded the ascension of Alexander the Great by 480 years.
which would place him and the founding of Macedonia as a state in the very late 9th century BC. There are no references to Macedonia in the writings of Homer or the other early Greek epic poets who wrote of the events of earlier times. And therefore the accounts of later historians concerning the founding of the kingdom of Macedonia by Argives from the Peloponnesus seem to be credible. The early records also show that the Illyrians had a hand in helping the establishment of the kingdom of Macedon and both Illyrian and Thracian tribes were incorporated into that kingdom at an early time. Illyria being to the west of Macedon and Thrace to the east. After its establishment by Philip of Macedon, Philippi developed into a notable city-state which had endured for 200 years until 168 BC when the Romans, conquering the Macedonians, divided it into four separate states and the city survived but seems to have fallen into relative obscurity. Hardly a word from Diodorus Siculus or Strabo. I haven't checked the other historians, but they're the two most voluminous writers of the period. Hardly a word about Philippi between the time of Philip and the time of the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC, where Octavian and Antony had defeated the forces of Brutus and Cassius. Octavian retired some of his forces to Philippi, which increased its population and established the city as a colony. It was customary for retired Roman soldiers to be given grants of land either in Italy or in conquered provinces as a sort of pension for their services. Twelve years later, in another civil war, after the Battle of Actium and the defeat of Antony and Cleopatra by Octavian, the colony at Philippi was reorganized and expanded with grants to other Roman army veterans. We can safely imagine that the city had a mixed Macedonian Greek and Roman population in the New Testament period. At Acts chapter 16 verse 12, Philippi is called the first city of the district of Macedonia, a colony. At that time, the Roman status of colony was a political designation which elevated the status of a city and was not necessarily a mere settlement of newcomers, although we have seen that many Roman soldiers were retired and settled there. There are no records that the original population was dispossessed. As a colony, the residents of Philippi were granted Roman citizenship and were placed under the municipal law of Rome. The city was governed by military officers who were appointed by Rome. This was the government under which Paul and Silas were arrested as it is described in Acts chapter 16. As it is recorded in Acts 16, 
Paul of Tarsus was beckoned by the Spirit to go to Macedonia before preaching the gospel in Asia, meaning Asia Minor, the westernmost part of modern Turkey, which consisted of all Greek states, where he had later established many assemblies. All of the letters to the um, seven churches in the Revelation are to churches in Asia, meaning Asia Minor. Therefore, boarding a ship in the Troad, Paul and his company landed in Philippi. This is where Paul and those with him had met Lydia, the woman from Thuatira, which is actually in Asia, but Lydia was living in Philippi, who was a merchant of purple cloth. We believe... We believe that there is much symbolism in this. We believe that the leading of Paul to Macedonia before he could preach in Asia, as well as his encounter with Lydia, was both in fulfillment of certain prophecy and a prophetic statement in itself. While Lydia was from Thuatira, which was also a city of Asia, she is selling purple cloth in Macedonia. Purple cloth, although it had other decorative uses, was the color of royalty from the most ancient times. It is our opinion that Paul was summoned to Macedonia, where... From Romans chapter 15, we're not told this elsewhere. From Romans chapter 15, we learn that he also went to Illyria. Because many of the descendants of the dispersed Dardans, who were the Trojans of old, who were the tribe of Zarajuda, were living in those areas. Therefore, since the Dardans were largely descended from the royal tribe of Judah. Lydia's purple cloth, representing royalty, seems to be a prophetic hint that Yahweh, Yahweh summoned Paul to Macedon before he could preach in Asia in order to display the truth of the prophecy, which is found in Zechariah chapter 12, that he would save the tents of Judah first. So many of the Macedonians and Illyrians had the opportunity to hear the gospel before Paul established any of the better known Christian assemblies among the Greeks found in Ephesus and Corinth. It was at Philippi that Paul cast the demon of the python out of a woman, which is also quite symbolic on another scriptural level, the python being a serpent, and to the Greeks representing the power of prophecy and, and 
seer seeing. Seer, I'm not saying it right, I'm sorry. And other forms of sorcery. It was at Philippi that Paul cast the demon of the python out of a woman, and along with Silas, he was beaten and thrown into jail for it. Being released the next day, as it is described in Acts chapter 16, and I believe I was trying to say soothsaying. In that chapter of Acts, Luke writes in the first person plural, and this is important to grasp, as he was in Paul's company in Philippi. However, at the end of the chapter, we see that Paul and Silas had left Philippi without Luke, where Luke writes of them in the third person, and he says, in verse 40, And they went out of the prison, and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them, and departed. We are persuaded that since Luke does not mention seeing Paul again until Acts chapter 20, that Luke had remained with Lydia in Philippi for several years, as many as eight or nine years, from the events recorded in Acts 16, up to the time when Luke left Philippi to meet Paul and the others in the Troad, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. So apparently Luke remained in Philippi during the time of Paul's ministries in Corinth and Ephesus and all of his other travels, which upon describing, Luke always used the third-person forms of verbs and pronouns to describe Paul's activities. The words like he and them. But while Luke was with Paul, as in Acts chapter 16, and then later from Acts chapter 20 and onwards, Luke frequently used first-person forms of verbs and pronouns to describe their activities. Words like we and us. In the chapters where Luke was with Paul, he typically describes their activities in much greater detail. So we have only three chapters, Acts 17 through 19, describing Paul's ministries in Corinth, that's a year and a half plus, and in Ephesus, which is three years, and his several journeys into Macedonia and Jerusalem and Antioch, all of which span from about 49 A.D. to 57 A.D. when Luke meets Paul in the Troad, Acts chapter 20. But we have nine chapters, so we have three chapters covering over eight years, but we have nine chapters where Luke is with Paul describing the important events of his ministry from the time Luke reunited with him in the Troad. Through his arrest and arrival in Rome, which took place from the spring of 57 AD to at least the spring of 60 AD. So we have three chapters for nine years, and then we have nine chapters for three years.
This also helps to establish our assertion. Luke was with Paul from the time that he met him in Antioch, and during the events recorded in Acts chapters 15 and 16. Then Luke was with Paul from Acts chapter 20 through the end of Paul's ministry and Acts chapter 28. But Luke was in Philippi and not with Paul during the time recorded in Acts chapters 17 through 19, which was actually a considerable period of time. We may conjecture that Luke, having spent so many years in Philippi at this time, settled down in one place, apparently. The majority of his accounts in Scripture, both the Gospel of Luke and the early chapters of the book of Acts, at least through chapter 16, may have been written in Philippi. As we explain in an article of Christiania titled Ordering and Chronology of the Epistles of Paul, Prior to his arrest in Jerusalem, the Apostle had already written eight of his fourteen surviving epistles. These would include 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Corinthians, and Romans in that order. Of the remaining six epistles, all written while he was a prisoner, One seems to have been written while Paul was under arrest in Caesarea, which is Hebrews. We will further establish that assertion when we present that epistle, God willing, sometime on this program in a not-too-distant future. The first two epistles written by Paul from Rome, and before Timothy had joined him there, are Ephesians, and then to Timothy, in that order. In 2 Timothy, we see Paul requests that Timothy come to him in Rome. The remaining three epistles, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, were all written from Rome after Timothy had joined him, and shortly before his execution, which he was already anticipating as he wrote to Timothy. Timothy was mentioned as being partner with Paul in the writing of this epistle to the Philippians, as well as the others which are written at this time, which are Colossians and Philemon. The epistle to the Colossians reveals that another epistle was also written at this time, which is now missing and which was addressed to the Laodiceans. Earlier, before Paul's arrest, Timothy was with Paul in Nicopolis, where Paul had written his second epistle to the Corinthians. And then Timothy was attributed as a partner in the message of that epistle, 
with the exception of Romans whenever Timothy is with Paul near the end of his career Paul addresses his epistles as being from himself and Timothy we believe that doing this that Paul is actually associating Timothy with himself in his ministry and is indicating to us that Timothy is seen by Paul as both an equal partner and the legitimate heir to his ministry although that is never stated explicitly Yahweh God be willing we shall discuss this at a greater length when we make our presentation of to Timothy later in this series the ancient manuscript sources for this epistle to the Philippians are the third or perhaps fourth century papyrus p16 in which are preserved large portions of chapters 3 and 4 the third century papyrus p46 in which most but not all there are some lacuna or missing spaces in which most of the text was preserved the fourth century codices sinaiticus and vaticanus and the fifth century codices alexandrinus Ephraimisiri, Claromontanus, and Frerianus, the 5th century Uncial 048, and the 6th century Uncial 0282. Those are the readings that we used for our translation. With this, we shall commence with our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Paul and Timotheus, or Timothy, bondmen of Christ Yahshua, to all the saints among the number of Christ Yahshua who are in Philippus, along with the supervisors and ministers. Philippians in Greek is really Philippasians, rather than Philippi as it is known from the Latin form. When making the Christogenian New Testament translation, we chose to transliterate the Greek form of the name Philippus, which was the original name of the city. The word means lover of horses, and it was a common Greek name. It was also the name of one of the twelve original apostles, and the later Philip, who was called the Evangelist. The name was also found amongst the male, immediate male relatives of Herod the Edomite. The word for bondman here is doulos, which was properly an involuntary servant or a slave. According to Liddell and Scott, a doulos was originally one who was born as a bondman or slave. And of course, we were bought with a price, and we are not our own. We should all consider ourselves bondmen of Christ, working for the advancement of his kingdom. The Greek word episkopos is supervisor here. The word is one who watches over. Epi is over or upon, and skopos is the, the Greek word from which we get scope.
It is the Greek equivalent of the Latin word supervidere, which also means to oversee. And supervidere is the word from which we get the English word supervisor. The Greek word episcopus was adopted into medieval Latin, changing the P to a B, as episcopus, from which our English word bishop was ultimately made. But here we chose to translate the word episcopus literally, supervisor or overseer, so as to avoid any endorsement of the man-made church hierarchy in which words such as bishop are found and represent. Although diaconus is minister here, and minister is also a Latin word, the word minister should always be understood as a servant to the assembly, as the word minister is literally a servant. The original meaning of minister as a verb in English is to attend to the needs of someone, not to rule over them. The King James Version has deacon here, which is quite dishonest, since it usually translates the word diaconus as minister. As we have often said, the translation of the King James Version was engineered so as to make the Anglican Church hierarchy appear to be legitimate. And God willing, we shall address that issue at greater length when we have the occasion to discuss 1 Timothy. The word episcopus appears elsewhere in Paul's letters only at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, and elsewhere in the New Testament it is only found in 1 Peter chapter 2. In the Christogenian New Testament it is always supervisor or overseer. Of course the word diaconus is frequent in Paul, where sometimes we have minister and sometimes we have servant. In part two of our presentation of Acts chapter 16, given here in October of 2013, we explain that the year in which Paul, Silas, and Luke first arrived in Philippi was either 47 or 48 AD. Now, upon Paul's writing this epistle, it is perhaps... 61 or 62 AD. In Acts chapter 16, we see Paul encounter a small group of women gathered at a river for prayer on the Sabbath, as Luke recorded it. And on the day of the Sabbaths, we departed outside of the gate by the river, which we supposed to be for prayer, and meaning the gate that led out. And sitting we spoke to the women gathered there. This statement reveals the following facts. First, that Lydia and her woman friends were Judeans, or they would not have had such a custom of gathering by a river to pray on the Sabbath, which was a Hebrew custom as early as the days of Ezekiel and which is also evident in Judea in the New Testament period 
because that is why so many people gathered to the river to see John the Baptist on the Sabbaths. That is why John the Baptist stood baptizing, expecting to see people gathered by the river. Because the Judeans, where there was no synagogue to their satisfaction, gathered in small groups by the rivers to pray. Secondly, this establishes that there was no Judean synagogue in Philippi, so the Judean population of the city was probably not very large. If there were such a synagogue, the women may have been found there on the Sabbath, as well as Paul and his companions. Therefore, in 15 years we see that the assembly of Christians in Philippi has grown from the household of Lydia and the other women who were with her when they were first encountered by Paul into a multitude numerous enough to require several, at least, several overseers and ministers to serve it. The family of the jailer and perhaps some of the other prisoners of Acts chapter 16 must also be considered. But we have a small group which has grown in 15 years to a considerable assembly of Christians. In Acts chapters 18 and 19, we see that Timothy, Silas, and Erastus had all ministered in Macedonia as Paul was working elsewhere. And undoubtedly, the city of Philippi was included in their travels. However, Luke and others may also have had a hand in this growth of the Christian assemblies there. The records which may be gleaned from the book of Acts and from Paul's epistles are quite fragmentary and only careful conjecture can fill in some of the blanks. With this we will proceed to verse 2. Favor to you and peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. As the heavenly multitude is portrayed as having said in Luke chapter 2, honor to Yahweh in heights and peace upon the earth among approved men. The Codex Claromontanus has verse 3 to read, Indeed, I thank our Prince upon every mention of you. Here we shall proceed with verse 3. I thank my God upon every mention of you. Always, in my every supplication, making supplication with joy on behalf of you all, for your partnership in the good message, partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, being persuaded of this very thing, that he who begins a good work among you will discharge it until the day of Christ Yahshua. The reference to partnership in the gospel indicates that the Christian, having accepted the gospel, should become an active partaker in its message and not merely a passive recipient of its hope. A doer of the word, 
as James tells us in his epistle, and not merely a hearer of the word. Paul's meaning in verse 6 seems to be that good deeds performed by Christians become habitual and have an eternal effect, an effect which is referred to in the gospel as the storing up of treasure in heaven. Where Paul refers to the first day, he must be recollecting the events of Acts chapter 16, that he had been impressed by the faith and good works of these Christians in Philippi from that very time. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 7, Philippians chapter 1. Just as it is righteous for me to think this concerning all of you, because for you to have me in heart, both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the good message, you are all joint partakers of my favor. And with this we see that the Philippians must have been aware that Paul was held a prisoner in Rome, and that he was about to undergo the trial of defending the faith. That Paul was, in their prayers, was a source of encouragement to him in his trials. Here we may also conclude that Paul must have received some correspondence from the Christians of Philippi, to which he is now responding. In chapter 4 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, Peter speaks, I'm sorry, in chapter 4 of his first epistle, the first epistle of Peter, Peter speaks of Christians put to the trials of this world, thusly, from verse 13. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Here Paul tells the Christians of Philippi, likewise, of himself. And this should be a model for all Christians, that we should help one another through suffering, be partakers of the sufferings, and we shall be partakers with one another in times of joy and favor. If your friends don't stick stick with you through the rough times, they had no business being with you in the good times. If we have a common origin, we should realize that we have a common destiny and act accordingly. For my witness is Yahweh, that I yearn for you all in the affections of Christ Yahshua. The Greek word splanknon is literally bowels, as the King James Version has it here. But metaphorically, it is affections, as the ancient Greeks saw the bowels as the source of feelings and affections. Today we see something that moves us, and we feel our bowels move, and we express it in that manner. Paul yearned or longed for the Philippians in the sense of desiring fellowship with them once again. So we read in verse 9, And this I pray, that your love would still more and more abound 
in knowledge and in all understanding for you to examine those things that differ in order that you would be pure or sincere and not stumbling unto the day of Christ being filled with fruit of righteousness which is through Yahshua Christ for the honor and praise of Yahweh and pure in this verse is actually I lay I believe it's I lay krines, which is actually a word that means sincere and not pure as in a pure substance we will discuss that to a much greater extent in I'm sorry in Philippians chapter 2 God willing next week rather than for you to examine those things that differ the King James Version has that ye may approve things that are excellent however our rendering is perfectly literal the final verb diaphero means to differ it does not mean to be excellent the first verb Dokimazo may mean to approve in some contexts, but more literally it means to test or to scrutinize or to examine. The difference in translation here between the Christian New Testament and the King James Version is not trivial. The organized churches historically expected the people to approve of their decrees. The apostles insisted, however, that the people study for themselves and learn through the word of God what it is that they should accept or reject. The verb diaphero does not mean excellent. It refers to what differs what differs from the word of God we read in chapter 2 of the wisdom of Sirach they that fear the Lord will seek that which is well pleasing unto him and they that love him shall be filled with the law likewise in Proverbs chapter 1 we read how long ye simple ones will you love simplicity and the scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge turn you at my reproof behold I will pour out my spirit unto you and I will make known my words unto you because I have called and you refused I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded but you have set it not all my counsel and would none of my reproof I also will laugh at your calamity I will mock when your fear cometh when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind when distress and anguish cometh upon you then shall they call upon me but I will not answer they shall seek me early but they shall not find me for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh they would none of my counsel they despised all my reproof 
So we see that with the Spirit of God, the words of the law of God are revealed unto men. So Paul explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that a veil covered the law, but that the veil was lifted when one turned to Christ, when one accepted correction and reproof. As Paul had taught in Romans, the law is spiritual. Here we see that the proverb says, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will make known my words unto you. And we see that those with the spirit of God can understand the law of God because it is spiritual. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul had admonished his readers, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise expounding of scripture, but scrutinize, scrutinize all things. Hold fast that which is right. Abstain from every sort of wickedness. So to scrutinize all things and hold fast that which is right, one must understand the words of the law. To examine the things that differ, one must turn to the law, and by that, one may be able to measure what differs from the law, and hold fast to that which is right. The significant example in Scripture is, of course, in Acts chapter 17, and Paul's experience in Beroia. Then the brethren forthwith sent off Paul and Silas by night to Beroia, who departed, arriving in the assembly hall of the Judeans. These were of a more noble race than those in Thessalonica, who accepted the word with all eagerness, each day examining the writings, if these things would hold thusly. Paul encourages his readers that their love would abound more and more in knowledge. Their love for God's law would encourage them to read and study the law, to study the Old Testament scriptures, to gain all understanding. For you to examine those things that differ, not merely approve what some church declares as excellent. As we said, diaphero does not mean excellent. Verse 12. Now, I wish you to know, brethren, that those things concerning me have gone still more to the advancement of the good message, or the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ have become manifest to the whole prohitorium and to all the rest. The prohitorium at Rome Actually, the original Roman use of the word prohitorium was to refer to the commanding general's tent on the battlefield where his councils would meet and make plans or conduct official business. The prohitorium at Rome was the place where the official business of the emperor was conducted. And this is where Paul's case would have been heard. In Judea, at the time of Christ, prohitorium, the word prohitorium was used to describe the governor's residence. The word was also used in that manner. 
it's used of the house of the local ruler in this case Pontius Pilate in this case here in Philippians Caesar Nero so the official business of the emperor was conducted in the Praetorium, and this is where Paul made his defense of Christianity before Caesar in Rome and here Paul informs his readers of that the epistle to the Ephesians is the first of Paul's surviving epistles which was written while he was captive in Rome and it is evident that he still looked forward to standing before Caesar he did not stand before Caesar yet so he had asked the Ephesians to pray for him and we find this in Ephesians chapter 6 where he encourages them to be praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak the next epistle that Paul had written in captivity in Rome was to Timothy and we see that he did already stand before Caesar and expected to once again where while discussing the whereabouts of the various people who had been associated with his ministry he says in the closing verses of that epistle at my first answer no man stood with me but all men forsook me I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge <coughs> now <coughs> excuse me now writing this epistle to the Philippians Timothy has joined Paul as he was requested to into Timothy and Paul once again makes a reference to his defense before Caesar here in much more detail than we saw Paul mention into Timothy <clears throat> we cannot be entirely certain at this point if Paul is describing that first defense which he mentions in 2 Timothy or if there has already been another we don't know and he says in verse 14 and most of the brethren among the number of the prince trusting in my bonds venture more exceedingly to speak the word of Yahweh fearlessly the majority text and the third century papyri p46 have only to speak the word fearlessly here Paul leaves an example which Christians should follow to this day to speak the truth of the message of the gospel without, pe without fear Paul's defense of the faith before Caesar Nero must have made a spectacle and caused much subsequent discussion, discussion outside of the Praetorium encouraging other Christians to defend the gospel in the streets of Rome next Paul describes two types of people declaring the gospel in Rome 
as a result of his defense before the emperor. But note that they are both declaring the gospel. And whether for better or for worse, Paul considers that to be a positive circumstance. And he says in verse 15, Some indeed, even because of envy and strife, but some also by approval are proclaiming the Christ. And here Paul seems to be telling his readers that the enemies of Christ help prove that the gospel is true. Even the historical enemies of Christ, mocking and blaspheming him, had never denied his existence or the fact that he had suffered crucifixion on the day before the Passover. The passages concerning Christ in the Talmud also mock his mother Mary, contend that he was of illegitimate birth, claim that he was a sorcerer, a conjurer, and a magician, complain that he was worshipped as God after his death. Talmudic literature has contained many such disparaging passages concerning Christ since the earliest times, for which reason Christians began to seek censorship of the Talmud from the days of Justinian. The writings concerning Christ found in the Talmud, while they mock and blaspheme him, help to prove that the gospel is true once we understand the nature of those who wrote them. So it was with Paul that those who spoke of Christ with hostility in Rome nevertheless helped to prove that the gospel is true. And Paul says, surely these, meaning those who speak it by approval, surely these out of love, knowing that I am set for a defense of the good message, but those out of contention are declaring the Christ not purely, supposing to stir up tribulation in my bonds. And the majority text has to add tribulation to my bonds. But the majority text has also inverted the Greek text of verses 16 and 17, the result being evident in the King James Version. It doesn't really change the meaning, but it kind of flipped those two verses. Here Paul describes his opponents in Rome as provocateurs who would repeat the elements of the gospel in a way so as to invite the further persecution of true Christians rather than out of any care for the faith. Like the Talmudic writings, this testimony also displays the fact that even from the very beginning the enemies of Christ could not directly deny him they have misrepresented they may have misrepresented the facts of the gospel but were nevertheless admitting them to be true by not directly denying Christ they help us determine that the gospel is true what then verse 18 that in every way whether in pretext or in truth 
the pretext being provocation. Christ is declared, and in this I rejoice, and surely I will rejoice. The enemies of Christ opposed his nature, but not his existence. They opposed the methods behind his miracles and the fantastic accounts which came out of Judea. But they didn't oppose the fact that they happened. They argued with the how and the why of the events described in the gospel. And they debated the status that Christians assigned to Christ. But they could not deny the actual facts themselves, which had been attested by so many witnesses. So even when the enemies of Christ argued against the gospel, they proved that it was true. It is only modern scoffers who have come to directly denying the existence of Christ out of their own historical ignorance and the exploitation of the ignorance of others. This was not, however, the case in antiquity. Verse 19, Philippians chapter 1. For I know that this for me will result in preservation through your supplication and the additional fortune of the spirit of Yahshua Christ in accordance with my eager expectation and hope, seeing that in nothing shall I be ashamed, but with all free spokenness as always, even now Christ shall be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Further on in this discourse, in verse 25, Paul reveals that the preservation of which he speaks here is that of his own life, for which he is confident that he will not be executed as a result of his defense of the faith before the emperor. However, in spite of his own life or death, he is also confident that the cause of the gospel will be advanced and in that manner that Christ, being declared, shall also be exalted. But there should be no doubt that Paul was indeed executed sometime after his writing of this epistle. And here he also considered and bravely countenanced that possibility as well, where he declares in verse 21 that for me to live anointed and to die is gain, is gain. The King James Version has this verse in part, for me to live is Christ, which makes no sense whatsoever. This verse helps establish that Paul certainly did use the word Christus, or I'm sorry, Christos, as an adjective, anointed, which the King James and most translators seem not to have understood. Christians should understand that to suffer the death of the body is to enter into life. Christ himself illustrated this in an allegory where he said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 18, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend me, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halted or maimed, 
hand, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. But he also stated it more directly where he told the thief who was being executed along with him, that verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 23. Paul further illustrates this principle here, where he says, But if to live in flesh, this for me a fruit of labor, then I know not which I prefer, meaning to die, anointed, which is gain, or to live in a flesh, and continue in his labors, then I know not which I prefer. I am afflicted by the two, having the desire for which to depart and to be with Christ very much the better. But to continue in the flesh is of more necessity for your sake. The Christian belief in eternal life is in addition to the hope of ultimate resurrection. The people who believe that the conscience of the Adamic man dies, or even somehow hibernates along with the death of the body, are mistaken. When those who are born from above die, their spirits return to God. And Paul describes that as being with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul had written in this same manner where he said, as the King James Version records it, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, referring to the physical body, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, referring to the Adamic spirit. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked for we that are in this tabernacle do groan being burdened meaning the fleshly body not for that we would be unclothed but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life now he has wrought us for that selfsame thing is God who also has given unto us the earnest or deposit of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Paul believed that if his body died, his spirit would live and be with Christ. To continue with Philippians chapter 1, verse 25 and persuaded of this I know that I shall abide and remain with you all for your advancement and joy of the faith Paul believed that he was not going to be executed by Nero 
that your boast may be abundant in Christ Yahshua in respect of me, or simply in me, because of my presence again with you. If Paul were spared execution, he felt that it would be for the benefit of the assemblies, but not necessarily for himself. For himself, he expresses the desire to die, so that he may be with Christ. The Christian should be as confident as Paul was in this very respect, and in that way see himself in his daily walk through life as a sojourner working to build the kingdom of God on earth for as long a time as he is in the flesh. Ultimately, Resurrection returns the entire Adamic race to the flesh as Yahweh God shall not fail to have his creation as he originally designed in spite of the sins of men. Being confident of these things, that the Christian has life rather than penalty in death, the Christian should be fully confident in contending for the faith. For this reason, Paul exhorts his readers to obedience in Christ. Only conduct yourselves worthily of the good message of the anointed, in order that, whether coming and seeing you, or being away, meaning being dead, I hear of the things concerning you, that you stand in one spirit, in one soul, together striving, in the faith of the good message. Paul's confidence that he may live includes the hope that he will ultimately be released from his bonds and be free once again to continue his ministration to the assemblies. Yet he holds out the possibility that this may not happen, where he again mentions being away in reference to his possible death, and nevertheless encourages the Philippians to remain steadfast in the faith in Christ. And he says, and in nothing being frightened by the opposition, which to them is an indication of destruction, but of your preservation, and this from Yahweh. The word Satan means adversary. If anybody asked me to prove that it referred to a collective adversary, this is just one of those places that I could go to prove that. Paul is speaking of a collective group which he labels the opposition. And he says, which to them, so we see it proven, that the opposition is a group and an opposite is an adversary which in Hebrew is Satan so the opposition starting with the Jews are not to be converted but rather Christians are to pray for their destruction as Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die, but to those who are being preserved, to us it is the power of Yahweh.
the only conversion of the Jews which Christians may ever expect upon the return of the Christ will be to see them all converted into ashes. It was a purpose of the gospel to separate the wheat from the tares, but never to attempt to make wheat from the tares. For these reasons, Christian obedience to the word of God is the biggest fear of the enemies of Christ. For this, they have infiltrated and subverted all Christian churches for over 1900 years, as Paul, Jude, and Peter all attest. Paul had told those same Corinthians in chapter 10 of his second epistle to them, that they should be in readiness to avenge all disobedience whenever they shall have fulfilled their disobedience. The Jews understand that Christian obedience to God is a sign that they themselves shall be destroyed. That is why, more than any other sect or creed, the Jews hate and fear what we call Christian identity. Christian identity is the only form of Christianity which teaches the truth concerning the historical identity of the various tribes and parties of the scripture, and which also teaches the love for kinship and race which naturally goes along with that understanding and which also beckons Christians to obedience in Christ to keep the laws of Yahweh our God as Christ himself had commanded. Paul concludes the chapter. Because to you it has been offered, and the word may also mean granted, concerning Christ, not only to believe in him, but also in behalf of him to suffer, all day like sheep, speaking of the children of Israel, all day like sheep, we are regarded for the slaughter, paraphrasing the psalm. Having that same struggle like you have seen with me, and now you hear of with me. The offering or granting of which Paul speaks is the general theme of the prophets concerning the granting of mercy and offering of reconciliation to the children of Israel. We may read one small example in Isaiah chapter 48. Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. All day like sheep, we are regarded for the slaughter, as it says in the psalm, and as Paul actually cited in his epistle to the Romans. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake, Isaiah 48.11, will I do it, for how should my name be polluted? And I will not give my glory unto another. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called, Yahweh commanding or offering the children of Israel 
to hearken unto him. Because to you it has been offered concerning Christ. The Philippians, with all certainty, being among the lost descendants of the children of Israel. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Isaiah 48.12 And we will offer one other example in Jeremiah chapter 30. Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I will bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places. As Paul says, Because to you, to you who are also descendants of Jacob, it has been offered concerning Christ. And the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Jeremiah thirty nineteen. And out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of them that make merry, and I will multiply them, meaning the captivity of Jacob and they shall not be few. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as aforetime, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all that oppress them. Jeremiah was writing long after most of the children of Israel had gone off into that mentioned captivity with the Assyrians. Contending for the faith in Christ, pursuing the kingdom of Yahweh, obeying his, his commandments, these lead to a life of relative hardship. But the consequences of sin are much more difficult to live with. Paul sets forth his own walk in the faith, and the ultimate sacrifice which he is about to make, but which he, he nevertheless, hopes to avoid. Paul sets them forth as examples for his readers that they follow in that same struggle. This concludes the first segment of our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Tomorrow night, Addressing Feminism, Part 2. I know I started that on Fridays last week. I don't like to continue on a Saturday, a project I began on Fridays, but here we shall make an exception. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.